Our sermon text tonight comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 19. Verses 28 through 30. John 19, verses 28 through 30. And the title of this evening's sermon is Redemption Accomplished. Hear now the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Well, John has showed us in the previous section... He has showed us the family before the crucified Christ. Remember that Jesus' mother is there. And John showed us Christ at the apex of his humiliation. In the midst of that physical and spiritual agony on the cross, Jesus continues to think of others, to think of his sheep, to continue to love them to the end. And we hear him speak from the cross for the first time. And it is the final act of the dying Christ to his love for his own, the final act of a redemptive event of Jesus' suffering and death, and it's about the church. Both Mary, his mother, and the disciple whom he loves represents this new community. Both Mary and the beloved disciple represent the unique nature of the new community of the church. Mary, by being distanced from her role as the mother of Jesus, from now on will represent the maternal nature of the children of God and their corporate life together. And the beloved disciple, by being distanced from his role as the biological son of another, from now on will represent the adopted nature of the children of God and their continued work together. This is the church of the crucified Christ represented by Mary and the beloved disciple, a church that continues to witness of what Mary and John saw that very day, witnessing to the ends of the world the gospel of the crucified Christ. That is what characterizes the church. And so Jesus creates a new family from the cross, a family that is not born of blood, nor of the will of man, a newborn family that is of God. At the cross, before the crucified Christ, you have adopted mother and adopted son, the family of faith. They are not ashamed of the cross. They are, by spirit, born faith, determined to know nothing except Christ and Him crucified. And so this family, that is the church, that is the church who are those that stand at the foot of the cross, waiting and believing and trusting, beholding with the eyes of faith their exposed Lord upon the tree, bearing their sin and curse, standing under the blood of the Lamb, which satisfies and atones, reconciles with God, and speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, because it is the blood of Jesus. 
Behold your king, dying in your place, substituting his death for yours, a king who lays down his life for his subjects, taking our nakedness and shame and clothing us with garments of righteousness. It is the covering that God himself has provided. That covering is Jesus Christ. And so, John introduces us to a new section with the words after this. In John 19.28, we read this. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. John focuses our attention from the details surrounding the cross, from the title above Jesus, from the garments and tunic below Jesus, from the family before Jesus. He takes our attention now from all of those details to the person hanging on the cross. And when you read the after this, ask yourself, after what? And notice the preceding context and what John is really saying to us. The after this is telling us how much meaning John attaches to Jesus' words of farewell to Mary and to the beloved disciple. John is telling us that these words that he spoke to Mary and the disciple give us a framework of the work of salvation that Jesus has been sent to accomplish. This was his concluding act of that work that the Father had sent him to do. And it is nothing less than the creation of the church. It is after that final act, Jesus knew that all was now finished. He knew all things had been completed. And John gives us Jesus' perspective on his own death. Jesus is in complete control He has accomplished all the work given to him by his father. In just a few seconds, he will utter the word, it is finished. And here John gives us insight into what exactly is finished. The crucified Christ has now accomplished all things assigned to him by his father. And John tells us that between Jesus, knowing all things were finished, and it is finished in verse 30. Jesus speaks again from the cross, and he says, I thirst. You notice that? In between Jesus, knowing all things were finished, and verse 30, where it is finished, Jesus speaks from the cross, and he says, I thirst. And John tells us that this was said to fulfill Scripture. And so, Scripture now stands in the foreground as the motive of Jesus saying, I thirst. John is not adding anything to the all was now finished, but showing us how Jesus, even in his final moments, when there was nothing left for him to do, even in his thirst from the cross, he fulfilled Scripture. All things are complete. All that the Father has sent Jesus to do is now done. The crucified Christ brings the Scripture to its completion. The crucified Christ is the completion of Scripture. It is the completion of everything that was promised in Scripture and the foundation of everything still to come. And we see here in the smallest details of the death of Christ, we see here in the smallest detail 
It's exactly the fulfillment of what the Scripture has spoken by the prophets long ago. It's not that Jesus is following a script on what he should say next. He fulfills the Scripture by this lament that he cries from the cross, I thirst, shows us the depth of his suffering that was foretold by the prophets. I thirst is the deep reality of his suffering. And Scripture is the very foundation of Jesus' last word. Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture. It's a fulfillment of Psalm 69, verse 21. We read this. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me um, sour wine to drink. Verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 69 says this, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. And I think that John has the entire psalm in mind in its portrayal of the righteous sufferer. It's also a fulfillment of Psalm twenty-two, fifteen, which was just quoted in reference to his garments being divided among his enemies. We read this in Psalm 22, starting at verse 15 through 18. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me, they have pierced my hands and feet, I can count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. John's account of the crucifixion of Christ serves as inspired commentary on Psalm 22, 15 through 18. In the Psalm, you have the righteous sufferer. He thirsts in verse 15. His hands and feet are pierced in verse uh, 16. His bones are preserved from being broken in verse 17. And we see here in John, Jesus thirsts from the cross, desperately dehydrated after a night of torture, hanging upon the cross under the near eastern sun, and he says, I thirst. And in voicing his suffering, he fulfills scripture. A suffering Christ, brothers and sisters, is the fulfillment of scripture. This isn't the first time Jesus has been thirsty. Last time Jesus asked for a drink was in John 4. Verse 7, when he spoke to the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And she is shocked that a Jew would even talk to her because she was a Samaritan. And do you remember Jesus' words to her? If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir... You have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, 
Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so here on the cross, the one who can give a spring of water welling up into eternal life thirsts. He thirsts in his suffering. Again, in John 7, 38-39, Jesus refers to a thirst that only he can quench. John 7, 38, Whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. In John 18, in the in the Garden of Gethsemane, after Peter tries to prevent Jesus from going to the cross, remember? Jesus tells him, The cup which the Father has given to me, shall I not drink it? And so in drinking the cup that the Father has given him, Jesus thirsts. In drinking the cup that the Father has given to him, Jesus thirsts. Jesus' suffering and death was not only in the Father's plan of redemption, it was a consequence of the Son's direct obedience to it. And so he declares his thirst from the cross, and he takes a drink in the next verse. We read in verse 29, A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Now, don't confuse this with wine mixed with myrrh, okay? That was a, uh, a sedative designed to dull agony, okay? It was medicinal. Your Lord is not taking medicine here, okay? Not taking a, something to knock him out. In fact, he refuses that drink in Mark fifteen twenty three. That is not the drink here in John. This drink is part of his suffering, Okay? And he is fully resolved to drink the suffering the Father has assigned to him. They offer him what is known as wine vinegar. He drinks vinegar. The text in John says sour wine. It is not quenching his thirst. It's not relieving him to even the smallest degree. Psalm 69 presents this drink as an act of hostility to aggravate suffering. The sour wine is part of the torture to increase his suffering. And his drinking symbolizes not only the cup from the Father, but how by his own thirst he fulfills in his person the thirst-quenching promise he declared in John 4 and 7. Jesus' thirst is is a substitutionary thirst. It is a representative thirst. The cross of Christ is the source of living, life-giving water. Here on the cross, Jesus was truly thirsty. As he hung on the cross, bearing our sin, he thirsted. And at the same time, it shows us the full solution of that thirst in his suffering. Deuteronomy chapter 28 
describes for us covenant blessings and covenant curses. And under the covenant curse section, we read this. Deuteronomy 28, verse 48. Therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything, and he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. Christ Jesus is bearing covenant curse for you here on the cross. Exposed naked for you so that you could be clothed in his righteousness. And he thirsted for you so that your thirst can be quenched with a spring of water that wells up to eternal life. And that spring is the cross of Jesus Christ. Let me point out one other detail here. In verse 29, we read that they, putting a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop and brought it to his mouth. Hyssop is a plant, small and bushy, with leaves and flowers that are, that are absorbent. And so it was used in the Old Testament for sprinkling. You, you read it in, in Exodus 12, 21, when Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves, According to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of your door of the house until the morning. And do you remember what happened that morning in Egypt? Every house of the Egyptians, it became a house of death. The Lord himself passed through the land of Egypt and took the lives of the firstborn, both man and beast. Every house in Egypt became a tomb, okay? But those, there were those there, not, uh, those were not the only houses marked by death, the house of the Egyptians. The house of the Egyptians were not the only houses marked by death that day. The Israelite houses were also marked by death. But it was the death of the Passover lambs. Lamb's blood. All over the side of the door and above the door, the Israelite houses that night were stamped, as it were, with the sign of death. Houses that experienced divine judgment. But at the same time, this same stamp of death, this death-signifying blood covered them who were inside. The blood of the Lamb protected them from the judgment. This death judgment of the Lamb then was vicarious, right? It was substitutionary. The Passover Lamb suffered the divine wrath that night in place of those who were covered by it. Israelites had a place of refuge under the blood of the Passover Lamb as the wrath creeped through Egypt and took the breath of life from every firstborn man and beast that wasn't taking refuge under its atonement. And those houses in Egypt, they became sanctuary sepulchers, sanctuary tombs. Those houses that were stamped with death became places of refuge in which those redeemed by the blood of the Lamb were sealed until God's divine judgment had passed. The blood of death became the blood of victorious sacrifice. 
And guess what? When morning came and the danger was over, the Israelites emerged from their blood-stained houses. And those house tombs became empty tombs, as it were. They became empty tombs as if they themselves were raised from the dead. And they came out of the tombs and marched to God's mountain, being led by God and His mediator Moses, out of Egypt, through the waters, to the mountain, to worship God. And here in John, it's the very fulfillment of Exodus 12. It's here at Golgotha, where the Lord cries, I thirst, and is given vinegar from a sponge that was placed within the the twigs of the hyssop plant. It is here where the true Passover lamb is slain, on the cross. The one who said in John 10, 7-11, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so in God's providence, the soldiers give him a drink. And the hyssop communicates the nature of that drink. It is the cup given to Jesus by the Father. The cup of divine wrath that produces the blood of the Lamb that covers us. Vicarious blood, substitutionary blood, sin-atoning blood. That is the sacrifice of the Son of God. And Jesus receives that cup. And John then describes the last moments of Jesus' life. In verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus speaks again for the last time in John's gospel in his time of humiliation on earth. In Greek, it's, one, it's a one-word statement. In English, it's three words. It is finished. The cross of Christ is the completion of the work of the Father through the Son, fulfilling the whole of Scripture to the finest degree. It is complete. Redemption is accomplished. And the verb is in the Greek perfect tense, and this verb tense describes a past action with continuing present tense force. It is a continuance of a completed action. And so this one word is the final statement of your Lord in His state of humiliation. The final word of the incarnate Son of God. He proclaims to us this evening by His word that everything He wanted to accomplish, everything the Father sent Him to accomplish, has been completed to perfection. Completed in the person and work of the Son in whom the Father is well pleased. This is, this is no cry of defeat. Do not leave this evening in a solemn mood. This is your champion's victory cry from the cross, okay? This is the announcement of the good news. This is the proclamation of the victory of the victim. This is the crushing of the serpent's head. He did it. 
He did what Adam couldn't and wouldn't. He did what Israel couldn't and wouldn't. In this moment of suffering and despair, God in the person of Christ declares to us this evening victory over sin, Satan, and death. And notice that it is Jesus who, after saying it is finished, it is Jesus who bowed his head and delivered his spirit. Okay, Death has no authority over him. He lays down his life for his sheep by his own authority. No one took his life from him. He delivers his spirit in one final act of obedience to his Father. And brothers and sisters, it is finished means that Christ satisfied divine justice. Those who do not belong to Christ will everlastingly bear the unrelieved and unmitigated judgment due to their sin. They will suffer eternally in the exaction of the demands of justice. But there is only one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who bore the full weight of divine judgment upon sin, and he bore it so as to end it for his sheep. The lost, the lost will eternally suffer in the satisfaction of divine justice. They will, they will never satisfy divine justice in hell. When Jesus says it is finished, it means that Christ satisfied justice. All our iniquity laid on him. He bore your sin. He bore the curse. He bore your iniquities. He bore the unrelieved and unmitigated damnation of sin. And he finished it. This is what he bore for you and for me. That's why he cries in the Garden of Gethsemane and in the Synoptic Gospels, covered in bloody, agonizing sweat, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. It's why he cries out from the cross the most mysterious words ever spoken, suspended between heaven and earth. He cries, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He bore the unrelieved and unmitigated damnation of sin, and he finished it. Brothers and sisters, no matter what occurs to you in this life from the providential hand of God, this much is true. It will not be a parallel with Gethsemane. It will not be a parallel with Calvary. You hear evangelicals say things like, uh, my own personal Gethsemane or my own personal Calvary. Our Gethsemane, your Gethsemane, is the one Christ endured. Your Calvary is the one that Christ endured. It is finished means this, that you will not have a Gethsemane. You will not have a Calvary. Those events that happen to your Lord are unparalleled. They are unique and unrepeated and unrepeatable. The greatest martyrdom of the greatest saint comes nowhere near to the experience of Christ in Gethsemane or Calvary. To think we can have those moments is to not understand what your Lord endured. We are but spectators. We are witnesses who see the wonder of Christ crucified and we taste and see just a sample of the praise and glory of the cross of Christ that even eternity 
will not be able to exhaust. Jesus, your King of glory, the Son of God incarnate, crushing the head of the serpent, defeating a beast and false prophet, by drinking the cup of wrath given to him by his Father. It was a cup of woe, indescribable agony. Jesus suffered physically on the cross, but it was the spiritual suffering that is completely indescribable. God in our nature, forsaken of God. Wrap your mind around that. So brothers and sisters, there there is no earthly analogy for Calvary, but it is this wonder of the cross that we see open for us, unspeakable love. The Father did not spare His only begotten Son in whom He was well pleased. He spared nothing that eternal unrelenting divine judgment demanded. He didn't spare it. He thirsted so that you would never thirst again, so that you would never bear the covenant curse of judgment. Goodness and mercy pursues you all the days of your life and will lift you up to heaven to abide where he is. Do you see how much you are loved by the Lord of heaven? Romans 8 tells us, starting in verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ laid down his life for you. He redeemed you by his blood. He gave himself as a ransom to deliver us from the Egypt of sin and death, from all iniquity. That, brothers and sisters, is what was secured for you when your Lord said, it is finished. That is redemption, perfectly accomplished on your behalf by your good shepherd king. And there is nothing left for you to do but to worship him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, perfectly accomplished on our behalf, perfectly applied to us by his spirit, uniting us to the risen and ascended Christ who was crucified for us. Continue to raise our eyes to heaven from where our help comes, from where the Lord Jesus himself ascended to reigning with him, seating us in the heavenly places, 
where he continually intercedes for us unceasingly. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.